Thank you, Anne, and uh, good morning, everybody. Well, I got a nice welcome too, Anne. Yeah, it's good. Um, up the back there, there is a sermon transcript. If following that is something that you would find helpful, there's also an outline if taking notes helps you to concentrate. Um, but I'm sure that many of you are aware that the word gospel, which is what we're going to be really thinking about for the rest of this term, that the word gospel means good news. Uh, but you may not realise that the term actually has, has a bit of formality to it. In other words, it's it didn't tend to get used incidentally like... You know, oh, by the way, some good news, your new hibachi grill that you ordered has turned up, right? It's not not that kind of casual sort of good news. It tended to be used of pretty big announcements, um, proclaiming a message worth people celebrating. That was the gospel. Um, And when Christians use the word gospel, they're referring to a very specific message, and I think Christians would say it is a goodness which almost transcends the relative and enters into the absolute when it comes to good news. Because the Christian understanding of the gospel is that it is indeed not just good news, but it is the best news, the most worthy of celebrating of all possible messages you could ever hear. Because it is a message that takes people all the way from the darkest reality to the most radiant reality, from death to life and glory. Now, let me remind you where we're up to in Romans. If you haven't been, if you've been away on holidays for the last three weeks, great. Hope you had a wonderful time. Let me tell you where we're up to. We're left with a problem that that Josh kind of flagged for us earlier. That at the end of chapter 3, verse 20, we're left in a pretty dark place. Every mouth, we're told, is silenced without a defence. No one is righteous, we're told. Not, not even one. The whole world, if you're picturing it, the whole world is standing accountable to God and ready on the cusp of facing his just condemnation because of our sin. We desperately need some kind of other means of salvation apart from the law because we've heard that the law won't get us anywhere. We are are stuffed if there is not another alternative available for us. That's the problem we're in, right? The, The reality is we're all guilty of sin. And that reality is something that we should all be deeply concerned by, and I mean that. You know, a month ago I heard a sermon on Psalm 38, which was the, the first reading we were given. Um, and the passage that was read, the passage that was read to us earlier, and the, the preacher recalled, he gave this illustration that struck me and, and, uh, and I thought I'd share it with you. He recalled a powerful scene from the Old Testament hospital um, drama called ER. You know, any of you remember ER, right? It's the show that brought George Clooney to fame if you don't know what ER is. Um, anyway, in the, in the scene, there's this man who is dying and he's being visited by the hospital chaplain. Now, the hospital chaplain was one of those wishy-washy religious types who you're left wondering whether they actually believe anything at all. Sadly, the most common kind of form of Christian you tend to see on television programs. Um, anyway, um, the dying man is racked with guilt because he was the respons- responsible for taking someone else's life. And killed someone. And he's desperate to know what to do about it because he knows he's facing the end and he knows 
that he's guilty. Now, ER is not a Christian show by any means, but listen to how the conversation goes. The patient says this to the chaplain, I'm afraid of what comes next. And the chaplain says, well, what do you think that is? And he says, you tell me. Is atonement even possible? What does God even want from me? Well, I think it's up to each one of us to interpret what God wants. Oh, so people can do anything. They can rape, they can murder, they can steal, all in the name of God, and it's okay. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Then what are you saying? Because all I'm hearing is some new age, God is love, one size fits all rubbish. I understand. No. No, you don't understand. I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God and a real hell. Look, I hear that you're frustrated, but, uh, but you need to ask yourself, no, no, I don't need to ask myself. I need answers. And all of your questions and uncertainties are only making things worse. I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I'm running out of time. That's a, it's a great scene. There is a man who's at the end and he has seen the folly and the false hope that other solutions to guilt provide or fail to provide. Because when you know the reality of your guilt, platitudes just don't cut it. Guilt is real, both as a feeling, but also as a deadly legal reality. As David said in Psalm 38, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. So what we need is not empty consolation at this point. We need a real solution that will take that burden from us. Well, it is into that human context, which is everyone's human context, that the good news of the gospel gets preached. Now, we're just going to look at six verses today. Um, The rest of the chapter will be looked at in growth groups this week. It's going to be part of next week's talk in Romans chapter 4. But these are very... Six very important verses. One commentator called them possibly, listen to this, possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Ever written. That, and this person was not ignorant of how big a claim they were making. Because you see, in these six verses, Paul explains what God has done to deal with the deadly problem of human sin. And the paragraph begins by signalling a profound turning point. Look at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Now, the but now there does a couple of different things. Uh, First, it just signals a logical development in the argument, right? It tells us that Paul's argument is moving from the problem of sin, it's pivoting now to show us God's wonderful solution, which the wonderful other smaller g good news is that you get to hear about this for the rest of this term, right? It's, it's great. We've spent three weeks in sin, the rest of the term in, in the wonderful glory that comes with the gospel. But the second thing about this but now is it, it, it signals a very important development in real time, in history. 
Previously, we were told, remember, that the law, God's law, has silenced every mouth. And it silences every mouth because it testifies to our sin. But now, something new has been known, made known that wasn't revealed before. Yes, previously God's righteousness was evident in the law that he had made known to his people. But that aspect of God's righteousness didn't save. Rather, it exposed. It exposed human sinfulness for what it is. But now, the righteousness of God has been made known in another way. A way that is apart from the law, aside from the law. God has done something new in human history. And this is the good news that Paul has already told us He has been sent throughout the world to preach. See, it's back in chapter 1, remember, Paul told us that he wasn't ashamed of the gospel of the good news. Why? For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that's by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The difference between chapter 1 and here in chapter 3 is that now, having read and thought through all of that, this reality is filled for us, the reader, with a far deeper meaning and significance. See, back then, perhaps, we did not appreciate just how good the news really is, how astounding it is to receive God's righteousness. Remember when we did the ta-da kind of thing, if you are here a few weeks ago, and go, really, that's it? Whereas now, you get to chapter 3 and you go, yeah, yeah, that's it. Righteousness. But now after two chapters of exploring the depths of human sin and how God's law rightfully condemns every person, we've got a deeper appreciation of just how desperately we need God's righteousness. Now that we acknowledge the truth that we've been suppressing and know ourselves to be sinners, our ears are now alert, aren't they, to how we might receive a righteousness apart from the law. But notice as well that this righteousness apart from the law was something to which the law and the prophets, by that, that's talking about the whole of the Old Testament, was bearing witness, testifying to. So on one hand, it's now been revealed, but it was being borne witness to in the past. What that's kind of saying is that we'll see how it's been testified to in, in, through the talk. But in other words, we're hearing this is not God's plan B. This but now is not something that God hadn't thought of before. It was actually promised all the way through the Bible. But what was promised before, Paul is saying, is now revealed to be seen. This is the glorious message of salvation that humanity could never hope to have by ourselves. So then, what is this righteousness of God that has been revealed apart from the law? Have a look at verses 22 and 23. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so this righteousness of God is not one that we access by obeying the law, by obeying the written rules, because we've already established that we can't do that. Rather, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is the pathway to this righteousness. 
I wonder how we really grasp how remarkable this is. Especially if you've been a Christian for a long time and you've read Romans three or four times and whatever else like that. There's a familiarity to it. But have you grasped how remarkable this is? How stunning it is that we have any access to God at all, let alone for all who believe to receive it simply through faith in Jesus. I mean, wow. And I say simply because it really is. Simply by faith in Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Simple is not the same as easy. They mean different things. As we will see, the reality of what Jesus has done is the polar opposite of easy. But for us, the path is actually simple. It's not, it's not complicated. It is simply faith, trust in the one that did the hard work for us. Nothing more than faith and nothing less than faith. What every person has in common, be a person Jew or Gentile or whatever, is that we're all equally guilty of sinning against God. All have sinned, past tense, and all fall short of the glory of God, and that's in the present tense. Everyone is guilty of offences against God, and everyone continues to be found lacking in comparison to God. The thing about salvation is it's a very, very level playing field. Look, when we compare ourselves, we might feel, you know, do the pecking order thing. We might feel inferior to someone or superior to somebody else. We might look at others and rate one person more highly on the worthiness scale than another person. There's a wicked person, there's a good person, there's a medium person and they're meh, you know, whatever. But as the old preacher put it, you may be at the bottom of the deepest mine or you might be standing on top of the highest mountain but neither person has any hope of touching the stars. All fall far, 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 far short of God's glory. But here's something that, as I ponder it, blows my mind about that. A person might say, well, why would I be held to account for falling short of God's glory? Like, I mean, give us a reasonable standard here. I mean, God's God. I'm just a person. Surely that's an impossible expectation of us. But I actually want to say, if you really want another picture of just how great the fall of human sin is, it is the fact that that expectation is not unreasonable. We were made in the image of this glorious God. And if it weren't for sin, we would actually be sharing in his glory. As indeed, those who are forgiven in Christ will one day do. That's how big sin is. But because of sin, we're now all in the same state. And yet it is for that very reason, because there is no difference because every one of us has no hope of accessing God's righteousness by our own means and by our own works, that God, in his mercy, gives 
gives every one of us equal access to him by the means that he himself has provided for us through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, faith means trust. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That God's solution to our problem involves us trusting him again. We've spent our lives saying that we know better than he does, questioning God's sovereignty, doubting his wisdom and goodness to us. Did God really say? Remember that word in the garden. And what's that brought us? Nothing but suffering, misery and death. And God says, though, I've opened up a new way. I've dealt with your problem and the way you can come to me again is by trusting me again. But more specifically, trusting my son, who he is and what he did for you. There is an open door and it is open, hear this, to anyone, anyone. Um, Perhaps I need to enhance that image a bit so you can get a better picture of this. Don't think, if you're picturing a door being open, think of a normal door. You know, some door that you might walk through casually with no sense of the significance of having walked through it. Instead, think of this. Think of a, of a three-metre-thick, solid steel bank vault door being opened to you. A door that you would have absolutely no hope of penetrating if that door remained closed. But there it is. Open. And, and through the doorway, in full view, is the treasure that could not be exhausted in a thousand lifetimes. And the door is it's just open. It's open for anyone, anyone to walk through and access the treasure. Anyone. Well, you mean even me? Yes. Yes, even you. And even the person next to you. And even the person down the street, and even the person on the other side of the world. See, for some of us, the idea of something being inaccessible is a a relatively foreign experience. Now, for some of us, experiencing, experiencing open doors is more common than experiencing closed doors. And we don't face the same barriers that other people do. Um, take me, for example, right? I mean, if there was a communist revolution, I'd be one of the first ones up against the wall. Right? I'm a middle-aged, white, male, able-bodied, blue-eyed, Protestant, heterosexual, private school educated, university graduate who grew up in a stable home, has a stable job and is married with kids. Right? In worldly terms, if we're playing privilege bingo, I think I've checked off most of the boxes there. Most people in the world would say to people like me, you, you have it easy. That's not the experience of many. For some, the doors of life seem to be closed to them, whichever path they choose to take. And maybe your life feels like that. Like it's one where there's just restrictions on you everywhere. Hindered maybe by the prejudices of other people. Born in the wrong place. Born with the wrong skin colour. Born with a less privileged set of chromosomes hindered by your upbringing, hindered by the circumstances of your life, hindered by physical or mental disabilities or illnesses that plague you, 
But the bad news and the good news is that salvation is truly a level playing field. No privilege on this earth can penetrate the vault door that has been locked by our own sin. No one gets the easy run into that. It's impenetrable. And no disadvantage of life or circumstances can close a door that God has opened by his grace to us in Jesus Christ. So we all share the same deadly spiritual condition and we all share the same pathway of hope. And so the obvious question that lies before us all is, will you trust Jesus and walk through the open door? It is simple. All right, but how, how, how does God do it, right? What's the how here? How does he make sinners righteous simply by faith? Well, this is what Paul shows to us in the next verse and a half, verses 24 and 25. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. All right, it's only a verse and a half, but there are some very, very important and significant points being made here. The first thing I want to show you is at the beginning of verse 24 there, are justified freely by his grace. Do you see that there? Just pause and let that settle on you for a bit. Remember which God we're talking about here. This is the same God that we've been reading about, whose wrath, we're told, is being revealed against all the godlessness and all the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. His wrath is being revealed against those who fail to glorify him as God or give thanks to him, Romans 1 tells us. And so sin, as we established a few weeks ago, rightly angers God. But notice that. Justified, what that means is to be declared righteous in the sight of God. Justified freely. You see that? Has there ever been a more amazing adverb God is justifying people freely. He's happy to do it. The God that we've been told is angry. Happy to do it. Ready to do it. For anyone. How? By his grace. By his free giving of his righteousness. That is what grace means. By his gift. You know, there's a, is there a scene from one of um, Oprah's shows, right? Uh, one of her giveaway shows where, where um, that's become a meme that you now send around through everyone. There's go, you get a car and you get a car and you get a car. Well, Paul is telling us that God is doing something form, far more astounding for its generosity than anything Oprah could dream up. But notice as well, he does this to the undeserving objects of his wrath. Not to his devoted, fawning fans who are going to say, we love Oprah, she's wonderful. No, no, this is to people who are his enemies. And we'll hear about that in Romans 5. God freely gives his righteousness that he might save them, his enemies, from their own sin and his own anger. 
Now, I take it you're familiar with the song Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. John Newton, the converted slave trader, got it. What do you call it? Sweet, precious grace. Really, God? It's like he's saying, he's saying, you would be happy to declare someone like me righteous in your sight? Me? Despite all of the things I know I have done to you? Me? Amazing. But the more you think about how undeserved grace truly is, amazing seems almost like we don't have a word in English that's adequate for it. Amazing, is that the best we can come up with? Maybe. But it's better than that. Especially when you understand the means by which he can declare you and me to be righteous. Now, Paul uses two images. First is this, he says, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption. Now, redemption is a word that expresses the idea of being released. I mean, just that, you just conceive of that and you go, that's good, isn't it? Release. There's this freeing that goes on with redemption. It's a particular kind of freeing. It's, It's a freeing that comes by means of a payment. Like you might redeem a slave by paying their owner to set them free. Or like you might ransom a prisoner of war by paying the person who is holding them captive in order to release them, right? How does God redeem us? Not with money, but what are we told? By Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the price for our release, our freedom. How? How does Jesus pay the price for our freedom? Well, we come to the second image. And it's even more astounding than that first one. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So God presents Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, In English, what that means is a sacrifice that reconciles, that makes two separate parties one again. If I atone for what I've done wrong, I'm seeking to restore a relationship that I've ruined by expressing my remorse in some meaningful way so that you will accept my contrition, that you would be willing to forgive my offence and that might enable us to be at peace again. But the concept behind this verse in Romans is a specific kind of way of bringing about reconciliation. And it's the idea of what's called propitiation. Now, propitiation is turning aside someone's anger. Now, let let me try and illustrate for you. Imagine I was driving like an idiot and I lost control and I crashed my car through my friend's front fence and I destroyed the garden that he had spent countless hours and dollars establishing and carefully tending and getting the plants to take root and to flourish and it was his pride and joy, it meant so much to him and I've wiped it out because I've been an idiot. Now, the issue that I've now got to deal with 
is more than the cost of replacement, isn't it? Isn't it? Like, imagine if I said this, oh, yeah, my bad, but no biggie, my insurance will cover it. Would that be adequate? No, because my problem is not just financial. My problem is not just something that's broken that I've got to fix. I now have got to deal with the fact that my friend is angry at me and really angry at me and rightfully so because I've offended him deeply and he's ropeable. Someone's holding him back from punching me in the head, right? He's angry. I wiped out his life's work. I can't just buy it back. Something needs to happen above and beyond fixing his garden. Remember chapter 1? The wrath of God is being revealed against. Right? So that God is angry at sin. That is a problem that has to be dealt with. His anger. Later on in chapter 6, Paul describes it this way as we've heard in the, 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 the kids' song. The wages of sin is death. All right? A lifetime of offending against God and against others is storing up wrath and payday is coming. That righteous anger that is a suitable punishment for the crime of our sin should be coming our way. We should be facing the blowtorch of God's anger. And I, it's nothing less than I would deserve. And I'm powerless to address God's anger myself because I keep adding to the offences, and so do you. And what's more, what hope could I have of making up for all of the wreckage that I've left behind? Back in the Old Testament, there was a one day of the year when God set apart for the atonement of his people Israel. It was called the Day of Atonement. You might know it as Yom Kippur. Um, you, you can read about it in Leviticus 16. And on that day, sacrifices would be made to propitiate the sins of all of the people. And in particular, there were two goats involved. Now, one goat would be sacrificed as an offering for their sin. It would die in the place of God's people. Just a goat, but a very important symbolic goat. <laughs> but the other, the scapegoat, which is where we get the word from, would have the people's sin symbolically placed upon it and then the goat, instead of the people, would be driven away from the camp, driven away from the presence of God. Showing the death and rejection by God of what the sins of God's people deserve. Death and rejection. Alienation. But look what God does here. It's our sin. God is the one who's offended but God is the one who provides the sacrifice. We're not providing the sacrifice. He is. And it's our sin, but it's not our blood that gets shed. It's the blood of Jesus, who the rest of the Bible shows to us, is God the Son. It's our sin, but it's on the cross that Jesus faces the anger of his Father that we deserve. In other words, God does it all. All of that anger that by rights should be coming my way, and Jesus takes it upon himself. Back in verse 21, Paul told us that the law and the prophets, remember how I mentioned this earlier, the law and the prophets bore witness to the righteousness of God that will now be revealed in, in Jesus. Well, we've already heard about redemption. And that's a word that the Jews had long associated with their being freed from slavery in Egypt. We've heard about a sacrifice of atonement, a way of dealing with sin that was foreshadowed in the rituals of Israel and their worship. But that propitiation would happen not by means of a goat or even two goats, but through an innocent servant of God. 
And this too was foreshadowed by the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus' death in my place is what redeems me. That is the cost of my freedom. But it seems so drastic, doesn't it? It seems so so extreme. I mean, I know sin's really bad, but was that the only way? Yes. Sin really is that bad. And that is why the sacrifice of Jesus was the only way. You see, there's another aspect of the righteousness of God that's revealed at the cross. It's not just the righteousness that he gives to us. It is the righteousness, maybe the integrity, you might say, that God himself displays when he saves us that way. See, look at verses 25 and 26. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. From the very first human sin, God has patiently borne with human rebellion. The world has still gone on. The sun has still risen and set. Making it clear that he is angry at it, yes, but bearing with it nonetheless. So that we could come to the but now of the present time, the era that we live in too. A but now where God shows his justice by duly punishing the accumulated sin of his people, built up over millennia, the sins of people yet to be born, concentrated all in on that one devastating outpouring of wrath and justice at the cross of Christ. This is no cheap forgiveness. The forgiven sinner hasn't had their sin ignored, which would be corrupt and unjust. It's been properly and justly dealt with by Jesus' death. At the cross, God demonstrates that sin matters and that his justice is thorough. And yet at the same time, it shows that God is just even as he justifies people like you and me, those who have faith in Jesus. If you do put your faith in the Saviour who died for you, then God is actually doing the right thing. He's actually just when he declares you to be righteous because your sin is really gone. Um, If you imagine humanity as possessing the gold, let's say, of God's image in which we were made and yet it's been sullied, it's been polluted by a whole lot of sludge that is our sin. The cross is the crucible, burning away every last impurity in the fury of God's justice, leaving only imperishable gold. Jesus has paid your penalty in its entirety. God has accepted Jesus in your place. There is nothing left for you to be judged for, which is why God is just in justifying you. And not only that, we have been told repeatedly by Paul that people are without defence. Well, now, when we stand before God in judgment, we will stand having already been declared righteous by God 
because beside us will be our great defender, Jesus, who will testify to having borne away our sin once and for all. You know, sometimes when you think how to go through a passage and think about how does it apply to me, it can be helpful to think, well, how should this impact what I do? How should this impact what I think? And how should this impact what I feel? So let's ask ourselves those three questions. What about do? Well, I think first and surely most importantly is trust, 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 right? Walk through the open door. And if you already have, recognise the treasure of what God has given for you. Let me tell you a a story. Um, On May the 28th, 2013, um, divers were looking at the wreckage of a boat called the Jason 4 and they were attempting to look after the vessel and get it back. It had sunk 100 feet down off the coast of Nigeria after capsizing. What they didn't expect to find was a survivor. Um, Harrison Akini was the ship's cook. He was in the toilet when the boat capsized. And he tried to reach an emergency exit hatch, but he failed, and the boat began to fill with water, with him trapped inside. Eventually, he found himself trapped with a four-square-foot bubble of air. And after three days, he'd given up all hope, as you can imagine. Imagine what those three days were like. And then he heard a knock, and it was the hammer of the divers working on the surface of the ship. And eventually... Diving gear was brought into him. He was brought into a decompression chamber, which he had to spend two days in. Um, He'd been at depths that should have killed him in a situation that took the lives of everyone else on board. Um, It's an amazing story of rescue and survival. Unsurprisingly, he vowed that he would never go to sea again. Um, If you just try and place yourself in that situation, imagine refusing the rescue sticking with the four square foot of air. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, being rescued as well and and then him going, oh, I'd love to go back every year. I'd like to go back into the, into the latrine and just where there's a little bit of pocket of air and just live it again. Um, translate this into a situation and a salvation where both the potential captivity and the new life that would follow the rescue both last forever. Um, Paul will get back into this in chapter 6. But here's the thing to do. Trust, 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 and don't take the righteousness that God has given you for granted. Recognise the new life that you've been given. As a Christian, you belong to the new. You have amazingly, miraculously escaped the old. Live it. What about think? How, How should this impact our thinking? Well, how are you going at trusting Jesus? What, what's getting in your way? If you're not yet a Christian, ask yourself, what is stopping me from walking through that door? Why am, why am I persisting in not trusting this God who by this very gospel has shown himself to be loving and forgiving and just, who offers hope to the hopeless, How much of my decision-making is to do with my pride? And when is going to be the time that I need to let my pride go? 
What about feel? <laughs> well, feel like Harrison Okini probably felt when he heard that first knock on the door, right? Feel like you've been offered an absolutely unexpected, undeserved lifeline. Soak it up and be astoundingly thankful for the grace of God in this good news. But at the end of the day, the most wonderful thing about today's passage is that this good news is actually true. That a real person in real time on a real cross with a real resurrection offers real forgiveness, real hope and gives you real righteousness. It's a fact of history. It is the best news ever. And so it is a message to embrace. But you know what else it is, brothers and sisters in Christ? It's a message you do not keep to yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace to us in Christ Jesus. We trust you. Help us to trust you more. And remove away all these barriers of pride and dull-headedness that stop us rejoicing in the gospel and passing it on. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.